Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, indie horror is sick and Grave Encounters is the symptom. It's our spoopy Halloween episode. Spoopy! The crypt is creaking, the tomb sounds great, spooks comes out for a screaming way. Happy haunts materialize and begin to vocalize. Grim grinning ghosts come out to socialize. We do not have the rights for that. It's okay, that wasn't really in key anyway. No, you sung it so well, we're gonna get a copyright strike. Damn it! Oh, Thurl Ravenscroft's estate is gonna be mad. So, welcome to Halloween. Welcome. Welcome. It's Halloween month. So this time we are going to be talking about indie horror a little, of which Mac and I have watched a lot. Usually the crappy stuff that's available on Netflix. We'll like get together and we'll be like, what do we want to do tonight? Let's watch some crappy horror. John will say, all right. And then he enjoys it. He possibly enjoys it even more than we do. It's true. We've watched a decent amount of indie horror over the years. Not really any of like the big stuff, mostly just whatever we find that looks really terrible on Netflix, which I feel is my favorite way of doing it. Kit, have you watched much indie horror? No, I prefer my horror to be overwrought, high budget, and gothic. I like it. If Eva Green isn't wailing and walking down a hallway in a slip dress, I'm not interested. Have you watched uh... Crimson Peak? Yeah. I want to. Crimson Peak is real good. You would like it. One of the first lines in the movie is, no, it's not a ghost story. It's a story with ghosts in it. It's a gothic romance is what it is. Yes, it is. It's a very good gothic romance. And because it's Del Toro, he got Doug Jones to be all the gothic spookies. Yay, spookies. Good old Doug Jones. Anyway, I'm actually kind of mad at you guys for making me watch this movie. No, you're welcome. I thought it was going to be hilariously bad. It was just bad. Sometimes we find the hilariously bad. Most of the time we just find plain bad ones. And sometimes we find good gems. The thing about Grave Encounters is that I feel like in terms of all the other indie horror shit that I've seen, it tends to straddle the line where it does a lot of things right. But then like after about the midpoint, it just falls downstairs a lot. It just goes splat and then it keeps going splat over and over. It just gets up and then hits another rake and then it walks another step and then it hits another rake. I remember after we first watched it, we said that if it had ended 30 minutes sooner, it would be a lot better for it. And if it had a different ending. The one that we all agreed at about like 45 minutes in that it should have had and then it didn't. But we'll get to that. But let's set the stage here. Let's talk a little about indie horror. Indie horror, if you've been on Netflix lately, is kind of thriving in terms of distribution because you don't have to get this thing in a festival anymore. It's just going to be all on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or what have you. If it's a streaming service, you're probably going to get your crappy horror movie on there as long as it had a decent budget. And by that, I mean like maybe... $15? None of it's spent on the actors. The actors work for free, you just rent a camera. So it's it's very much about getting your eyes on things. And let's preface this by saying we're not like horror movie buffs and that I don't really know actor names or anything, or I don't follow directors. I just, I just find shit and I watch it. That's about mine too. There are a few rare examples where I might know something. Like I know, for example, that Hush is written by the same director and writer as the new Ouija movie. That's, that's the extent of my knowledge right there. And also the Duke is really good. Oh, the Duke's so good. But we're not talking about the Duke today. We're talking about Grave Encounters. So one of the growing genres in indie horror is found footage movies. Ever since Blair Witch Project, people figured out, well, you could just put scary crap in front of a camera and shake it around a lot and have people scream. And then you can just like not worry about it. And that's just naturally spooky, am I right? And cheap. 
Oh, God, yeah. And uh, found footage movies represent a lot of these, like, crappy indie movies. Because, again, shoestring budget, and you can just pretend that, like, having a distortion on a camera means something scary is happening and you're spooked out. It doesn't have to worry about building tension. It doesn't have to worry about having, like, interesting characters. It doesn't even really worry about making a reason for why these people are recording everything. Cough, cough, Cloverfield, cough. And uh, right before we get into Grave Encounters, since we're going to be referencing this a bit, I want to talk a little bit about act structure and horror movies. Specifically, like, not slasher movies, we're talking specifically about ghosty, spooky, haunting, spoopy movies. So Act 1. Act 1 is our setup. Everything's fine. Uh, this house will be a fresh start for all of us. There's usually a harbinger that says, oh, you shouldn't go to the spoopy. And then they're like, we're going to go to the spoopy. We're going to live in the spoopy. It's a fresh start. And then somebody finds something mildly spoopy or experiences something mildly spoopy. Like there might be a painting that just kind of gives off bad vibes because it's of somebody axe murdering somebody else. Or maybe there's a spoopy doll set. Or your tiny child who is too old for imaginary friends suddenly gets a new imaginary friend. Or maybe you just hear a guy singing Tiny Tim's Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Looking at you, Inception. Shit, not Inception. Insidious. Inception would have been a million times better if Tiny Tim was on the soundtrack. And then as we finally get the idea that paranormal stuff is happening and somebody starts looking into it, then we get Act 2. Act 2 is our development of spooky hauntings. Part 1 of Act 2 is usually further spookies. This is usually the part where we're starting to get into awareness that spooky things are here and that they are vaguely menacing. Our midpoint is where the spooky get directly menacing and it raises the stakes and says, oh no, shit's real. The spookies are here. We have to call the Ghostbusters. My eggs are breaking into blood. My kids are walking around like robots. That spooky new imaginary friend seems real threatening and saying bad words. Yeah, and it's telling my kid that everybody should die. Say, this snuff film that I found in the basement is actually full of kids that murdered their parents. And the midpoint is usually around the point where we get the research montage, too. That's not so much in found footages, but in horror movies, you get the research montage where they go to the library or talk to the exact right librarian or go to the city hall and they find all the information they need without having to search through much. Or if it's a really bad version of the movie, there's just a mysterious, likely brown woman who tells them everything they need to know about the spookies. Hey, Annabelle, how's it going? Don't worry, she'll sacrifice herself for the white girl later. Thank goodness this know-it-all magical woman was able to tell you everything you needed to know and then sacrificed herself so you could live. Because part two is all like, oh no, shit's real. How do we defeat the spooks? And there's usually various like attempts and failures while the tension gets higher and the stakes get higher. And then we finally enter some kind of point of no return for this. And we have act three, which is our showdown versus the spooks or where shit hits the fan. And the major thing with most indie films, especially in the past two years, is they want to have the totally deep bad ending where everything doesn't end well. But they do it really poorly. Yeah, either everybody just fails or you have a fake out where it's like, oh, everything seems fine. Or is it? And almost all of them are like, yeah, we're super edgy for doing this the bad way. And it's like, no, not really. You just don't understand how movie plots work. They're like, hey, yeah, you know that one episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark with the people behind the x-ray specs and they got trapped at the end? That was cool. Let's do it. Now, with all that in mind... Let's get into Grave Encounters itself. We're not going to recap the whole movie because honestly, it's just 90 minutes of people getting lost in a hospital and you can't make goofs out of that. But we're going to recap the structure of this movie. But I am also going to tell you one thing, and it's if you have seen Ghost Adventures, which I have because I went to FrightCon and I got pictures with these guys and I watched every single episode of Ghost Adventures. 
This is basically Ghost Adventures down to the main character when he introduces himself as exactly the same introduction as Zack does at the beginning. And each of the characters fulfills a role that somebody else on Ghost Adventures does. Except this claims that it was the first Ghost Adventures show that all the other Ghost Adventures show based themselves on. So that's that's a clever bit of footwork. Yeah, let's run down our cast here because, of course, it's really small. So our main characters are... Host guy with the douchey hair. Camera guy with the shaggy hair. Who smokes cigarettes. Other camera guy. Who has a family. That's his thing. He has a daughter that's mentioned once. And then there's girl, who is a girl. That's the entirety of her character. And uh, we have an additional bonus character of psychic medium who looks like the middle stage of an Animorphs cover. Who's definitely not actually a psychic medium, but likes to pretend he is. He's an actor pretending to be a psychic medium. Right. These are our characters. Sometimes in indie horror, they'll try to give us a lot of like, oh, let's build character. Let's get to know these guys so it hurts more when they leave. And that usually in the hands of an inept director and screenwriter, that just leads to a lot of really boring scenes where people talk about things that aren't spooky ghosts. Yeah, it's the 20 minutes with jerks segment of the movie. There's usually a debauchery scene where they all get drunk at a party and someone films all of it. There's generally a boning scene, too, where, like, one person will bone the other, and, and then later they'll both die, and it's supposed to be super touching, but eh. British indie horror seems to be really interested in these character development things, to the exclusion of actually making me, like, interested or scared. But, I mean, that's from a small subset of British horror I've seen, so it, I might be overgeneralizing here, but, well, that's what Euphie's for. Yeah, we've seen a lot of British horror, and a lot we've seen has reduced to that, so I would generally agree with this. So instead of all those, we pretty much have a guy that's like, yeah, I received these tapes and there were like 73 hours of footage and we edited them together, which, you know, at least it does that. At least it says someone edited this footage together because that's my favorite thing about found footage movies. Someone had to edit this audio and add in music and do post-production work and cut these shots together when there were multiple cameras. And 73 hours reduced an hour. So, you know, there's a lot of footage on there that's just nothing. Nothing. And they're like, yeah, but this came first and this is not a movie. This is real. And then he like glances at the camera like, it, did it, is, that, is that good? Can I go? Cut the check. And so we shoot right to Grave Encounters. Speaking of which, they use the opening of Grave Encounters, the fake TV show, and they intercut it with footage from the asylum that they go to, from the sanitarium. So um, someone definitely went in and said, all right, I'm going to use this shot and cut it into the opening sequence. And it's like this super edgy like title sequence about, I saw a ghost when I was a kid and now I'm hunting ghosts and, and we're going to find real ghosts and this is Grave Encounters. We're going to hunt the ghosts. We're going to try and ghost hunt with hunting ghosts and show our show about hunting ghosts. It's called Grave Encounters. Do you get it? It's grave. It's spoopy. And then we start out with basically just getting all the introductory stuff with B-roll, with meeting our characters who, you know, at least they didn't bother to try and make us care about anybody. They're just sort of painted with the broadest strokes imaginable. They're here to transgress and be punished. The focus of this episode of the show, and I say with tremendous amounts of sarcasm, is the Collingwood Mental Hospital, which, oh boy, it takes place in an asylum. I bet this is going to be a respectful and nuanced look at mental illness and the history of treatment for such. Mark that off your bingo card. Uh, I appreciate that, yeah, it's abandoned mental hospitals are spooky. But the scariest thing about mental hospitals throughout the ages is abuses perpetrated by the doctors and nurses, not the fact that there were patients in the building who were mentally ill. A lot of times it'll say the main ghost is the spooky inmate. And this one at least says 
in a throwaway line, well, there was a doctor that did like terrible brain surgery on people and then like some inmates killed them. And then all of the ghosts that we see are usually just, well, they're just spookums. They're just spookums in the hospital. Yeah. The most actively angry one tends to be doctor guy. Apparently. And also I, I love that uh, there's a whole dramatic sequence where they're like, we're going to try and contact the spirit that people are calling the ghost of the Collingwood Psychiatric Hospital. That's not a creative name. That's not something you can successfully build tension towards saying. They do all these interviews before they get in there about the groundskeeper, about how they're going to be locked in, about how it's very maze-like, and even in the middle of the day, it's very dark and none of the lights work, so it'll be really dark at night. And uh, they point out a few different spaces where, like, here's somebody who killed themselves in a bathtub. Here's somebody who wrote a bunch of stuff on the walls that we'll never come back to. Here's, like, a hospital bed? That's spooky, right? So they get locked in. The idea is that it's like, what, 10 p.m.? Yeah, they're going to be there till 6 a.m., so eight hours. This is a really, really bad idea. Like, even if there's no ghosts, what if somebody falls down the stairs? What if somebody has an allergic reaction to a peanut? Like, this is a terrible idea. What do you do if someone hurts themselves and you need to get them to the hospital? Do you just wait for Kenny to come and let you out? The groundskeeper's name is Kenny, by the way. We're all waiting for Kenny. He's kind of like Godot, but less fancy. Yeah. Even like one of the cameramen, the black one, is like, dude, what if I need to go out and get some extra supplies from the van? Nope, it's locked. So the next portion of the movie after they lock the doors is just like half an hour of them wandering around the hospital, setting up cameras, looking for spooky shit and not finding spooky shit. As someone who spent a night in a sanitarium, this is approximately what my whole night was like. I've done like a ghost tour in like a movie theater. That was like, we wander around, we go sit in places, we hear about the ghosts that have been seen there before, or at least like presences that have been felt or the stuff they've caught. They record things and are like, who are you? Why are you here? Can you tell us your name? Except, you know, you leave like a minute in between each of those as you're recording it and then play it back. And you see if it's cold there. Because it's not like it gets cold in old hospitals with no heating in BC. This was filmed at a hospital in BC. It's a Canadian movie. I'm ashamed. Uh, I'd like to apologize to everyone on behalf of my country. Are you sorry? I am sorry. (laughs) It's a decent amount of tension building because it feeds you just enough like mildly spooky shit that you're like, okay, so is this the time when the spoopies show up? Is this the time when the spoopies show up? Is this the time when the spoopies show up? Like it's building this tension fairly well. Although every time something spooky does happen, they ruin it by having everyone pile into the room and talk about how spooky it was. This is what this movie does right and which is what a horror movie needs to do right is that it needs to build tension effectively. The scale of tension needs to look a lot like the chart over time of say a climate change where it's goes up and then down a little then up and then down a little and then up and then down a little in a steady crescendo like two steps forward one steps back so you build it you diffuse it a little but you keep building and you diffuse a little more until you finally reach the climax and everything just violently cuts out you need to be able to do these things in order to keep people interested and keep people a little spooked and and, you know it does it okay and then people just sort of pile into a room and talk about how spooky that thing was it diffuses the tension too much And then we hit the 45 minute mark and the actual ghost shit starts happening. But unfortunately, the actual ghost shit isn't actually scary. So they've killed all this tension and didn't replace it with anything. What I really liked about this movie is that their big paranormal thing was actually seeing footage of something lifting the girl's hair and she's pretty creeped out about it and wants to go. And then... They realize, wait a minute, we're still locked in here. And then eventually they keep getting creeped out by stuff. And they're like, all right, all right, all right, let's just, let's just go. 
let's just go. They start to take down the cameras and uh, one of the characters just goes missing. He just kind of wanders off. He's uh, he's in the room with the mysterious opening window, which was a thing that was established earlier, is that every once in a while there's this window that opens. You think this is Chekhov's open window? I'll tell you right now, nobody falls out the window. Yeah, the idea is that the window opens a little and the uh, and Kevin at the beginning is like, yeah, it's like something's trying to get out. And then nothing, nothing ever. It's just a window that opens and then gets closed and then opens again and nothing happens with it. Nobody gets shoved out the window. And a, and a distortion on the camera happens when the window opens. Ooh. So Mike disappears. Mike, the camera guy, disappears. Is it Mike or Matt? It doesn't matter. Matt, I th- you're right. I think it might be Matt. Mad Mardigan, the cameraman, disappears. And they all go looking for him and they can't find him. So they go back. They also start to get really turned around in the hospital. Like, it's very easy to get lost in there, apparently. So they go back to the general area. They realize that Kenny, the groundskeeper, should have come and let them out by now. So they start trying to break down the door. And here's where it actually gets interesting. Yeah, because they manage to break down the door and it doesn't lead outside. It leads to more hospital. And there's the same graffiti that was on the outside of the door on the outside of that door. So like the next, I don't know, I want to say 15 to 20 minutes is just them wandering around the hospital looking for a way out and not being able to find it because like the roof access stairwell leads to just a blank wall. And uh, they get up on the fifth floor and then they find a map that says you're here on the first floor. I like this part. I like the House of Leaves shit that we get into. That very quickly dissolves into just getting terrorized by ghosts. Here's this part where they slowly take some of those like quick develop pictures that when you develop it later, we'll show some ghosts, maybe. And we see development of them later. And yeah, they did show some ghosts. Maybe we see like some more weird stuff happening. And they've already abandoned the campsite because the food's mysteriously gone spoiled. And like their only light source goes out. So they just go into the rest of the place and get lost. And and then they see someone run behind them. And they assume that that's their buddy, Mad Mardigan whatever his name is. So they chase after him. And instead, there's a girl in the corner. Who, for a while there, looked like she was peeing? I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, there's a girl in the corner. She turns around, and it's jump scare face. Yeah, her mouth distorts, and she screams, and then they all run away. And that will start the way that the movie works for the next 15 to 20 minutes, which is we all wander around until we see something spooky, and then we all run away and hide somewhere and then talk about how spooky it was until we go out and repeat the process. This occasion is notable for the fact that uh, middle stage Animorphs cover medium guy gets separated from the rest of the group. This is the part where the movie stops being a man versus environment ghost story and starts saying, I don't know what to do with anything anymore. Let's just be a slasher movie where everybody gets picked off one by one. Yeah, let's just have ghosts kill people. Because like the medium is wandering around in pitch darkness and you see him from like some of the other cameras they'd set up in the hospital. And there's like the scene where he's at the end of a hallway and he gets like force choked by the ghost and then electrocuted. But it's like... He's very tiny on the screen at the time, so there's almost like, it's almost comedic. There's no dramatic tension there. And he just dies, and that's that, and it's not scary at all. And that's our first, like, on-screen death. Who dies next? I think TC, the other camera guy that dies next, because he gets pulled into the blood tub. Yeah, that's right. Because, like, they run away from the little girl, and they get really scared, and then they go out and wander around some more, and then they find the blood tub. Yeah, before that, they're hiding in a closet for a while and all of a sudden, like, bracelets show up on them that say that their patient's here and that's kind of spooky. And also something got carved into the girl's back because that's her only role into the movie is to have stuff happen to her and then she cries. The girl one is the girl one. 
I'm so scared. This is so spoopy. <laughs> anyway, they find Matt, finally. And he's in a hospital gown and the bracelet. And he's talking about how he can't go home until he's better. And it's like, ooh, spoopy. And then they go into uh, the bathroom where the girl killed herself. And the tub's full of blood! And Matt goes over to stand by it and look at it. And while the other camera guy, TC, goes over, tries to drag him away. A girl covered in blood jumps out of the blood tub and drags him in. And the camera goes all shaky because they didn't budget for this effect sequence. And it goes off to the side and you just hear them yelling about how they have to tip the tub over so they can get TC out. And then there's this like torrent of blood along the floor. And then, oh my god, he's gone! He just disappeared! And the camera's got blood on it, which is like super bad for the lens, but okay. Yeah, they wipe it off. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And then we go wander away. Then we run into something else spooky that screams at you. I think it's the hospital bed. Yeah, that's it's just attack of the flying bed. There's just a bed that jumps up and down and that's supposed to be scary. And they run away and scream about how scary it was. And then they find an elevator shaft. And they're like, okay, there's some access tunnels beneath that that we saw that were really spooky and labyrinthine down there. Maybe we can go to another building and it'll be fine. Everything hasn't gotten topsy-turvy around here. Everything works in a Euclidean way. It's fine. So the main host douche guy goes off to find a pipe that he can use to wedge the door open. While he's there, he sees a spooky ghost and he runs away and the ghost chases after him. And Oh, is that the one where he found the tongue on the floor? Yeah, it ripped its own tongue out or something. I don't know. I think it's implied that this was TC. I'm not sure. I don't know. It's just got a tongue on the ceiling. I don't know if the ghosts are as nuanced as to, like, represent anyone that's already there. Yeah. Anyway, it comes back and it chases them and, and the douche guy and the girl have to hold the door to keep it from coming through. And while they're doing that and distracted by that, Matt picks up the camera, goofs around with it, and then just falls into the elevator shaft and dies. And here's the thing. That seems to be the only way out. That's the only way out for him. That's the only way that he's going to leave this hospital. Put that in your pocket. And then the girl cries some more about how Matt's dead. And then the girl and the host one climb down and they're like, hey, Matt. And then they go through the access tunnels and oh, big surprise. Uh, shit's topsy-turvy. The access tunnel just keeps going. They go on forever. Oh, this part of the movie lasts forever. Yeah, they just sort of keep going in a direction. And this is the part where I sat down and was like, wait a minute. Why haven't they been making markings along the wall of like where they've been or where they're going? Because that would be smart. I mean, it's easy enough for the ghost to like mess with. You just start putting like lots of marks where they've put it before. That Come on, man. They're not even trying. So eventually they fall asleep. And the girl starts coughing up blood. And he's like, I don't think she's going to make it. And she's like, <laughs> And then like mysterious mist shows up and obscures the camera. And then the girl's gone. And that's just kind of her gone now. So like strangled by a ghost, taken by a blood ghost, fell into a shaft after being taken by ghosts, taken by mist. I mean, this ties into my this is just a Ravenloft game theory, but we'll get to that. And after that point, the dude's by himself and he keeps wandering down tunnels. At one point, he kills and eat a poor defenseless rat. That rat is more likable and sympathetic than any of the characters in this movie. And I am offended that it had to die. So here's the thing. This guy has been going in underground tunnels for at least a couple of days at this point, And it just goes in the same direction. Here's what should have happened. When he finally finds a door, as we knew he would... In order to make this feel satisfying, in order for it to come full circle, he finds a door. It opens. And it's the fourth floor of the sanitarium with the open window. A sheer four-floor drop. It's the only way out. Something was trying to get out. And he goes out and he dies. And that would be the end. But it's not. No. No, it turns out it was a satanic doctor. 
No, he just finds a door and it opens into a spoopy operating room with a satanic ritual with skulls everywhere. And like pictures of his friends being surgeried on. A spooky operating room. And then we just find a freaking like medieval satanic altar. With Nordic runes. Nordic runes. Nordic runes are not normally associated with black magic. They are mostly used for divination purposes. They just picked a random occult language and slapped it into a book so they could make this prop for the movie. I didn't know that was a thing. What, that Nordic runes are used for divination? Yeah. Yeah, you, you like put them on bones and then you throw the bones, basically. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like tarot. Each of them has a different meaning and the meaning can change based on whether the rune is reversed. And Yeah. I actually have a, uh, a bone rune set that I could use at some point. Fancy. Well, I know you had a Wiccan phase. Did did you have a Wiccan phase, Kit? I had a shamanism phase. So similar. But more Canadian. But more Canadian. All right, cool. That's cool. I actually just recently bought some Russian tarot cards. They're pretty neat. I need to get those Lisa Frank tarot cards. Oh, those would be awesome. These are cool things to know about you guys. Neat. Childhood interest in the occult. Yeah. No, that fits. That fits. I like it. So yeah, and then he sees the spooky doctor and his spooky nurses and they like turn on him and scream and their mouths open really wide and then there's just like static and then we see him again and he's like, there's blood coming out of his eyes and he's like, I'm all better now. Goodbye, Grave Encounters. End of the movie. So yeah. Like we were saying, there's so many decent parts of this. There's so many like interesting kind of spooky bits when it's all man versus environment, when it's all man versus the spooky non-Euclidean House of Leaves building. And then ghosts show up and start killing people and it's like, it's all gone now. It's just like, oh, I guess it's just a slasher now? Like a spooky slasher? I don't, huh. And the thing is that what would make that work is that if the characters were characters, even if they were actively dislikable, I'd at least want to see them suffer. Yeah, the whole thing about the slasher movie 20 Minutes with Jerks thing is that you're supposed to want these people to start dying at some point because it'll be cathartic to watch them get hacked to bits or whatever. Or at least if they're like characters you're interested in, you want to see them survive. These are the broadest brushstrokes of characters and that they are here, they are doing a show, and they're spookies. They each have a maximum of one character trait. Has daughter. Smokes cigarettes. Is girl. It's kind of like those uh, script things with Jane. 30s beautiful. Uh, it's infuriating. But like, if you're going to be one thing, at least follow the rules of that. If you're going to be a slasher, make us want to see them suffer or not want to see them suffer. If it's going to be a found footage horror movie where people just are driven to the brink by a spooky ghost and a house of leaves thing, that's fine. Just do that. But you can't marry these things because it just goes splat right when they start getting picked off comedically. It feels like the front half of one movie and the back half of another movie that were stitched together almost. Now, here's a fun thing, though. They made a sequel to this. You know how Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows took place in the world in which Blair Witch was a movie, but maybe a documentary? Oh, no. Grave Encounters 2 is about somebody who really liked the movie Grave Encounters and goes to find the sanitarium. But in that one, there is a debauchery scene. And also, they use the sound effects for the Auspex noise from Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines and it infuriates me. I hate when they use sound effects that you can identify from somewhere else. Like the doom scream. And then there's also this point in that movie where the idea is that they go and they find the host from the original movie who's still there. And then a portal opens to hell. You have to open the portal to hell because the sanitarium wants you to make the movie. So more people go to the sanitarium. And then like, look, here's the thing. 
A found footage movie has at least the caveat that one person is filming all the time. That's that's something that you have to do if you're going to do a found footage movie. In this one, they decide, screw that. The ghost picked up the camera and is now filming. Oh, no. The invisible ghost is now filming the movie. That is the worst. Everything that Grave Encounters, like, does decently. Uh, Grave Encounters 2 just kind of, like, smears on the floor. Doesn't that also involve, like, them talking to the ghost on the internets? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Grave Encounters 2. So you had you had a theory for this, right, kid? Okay. So I think Mackenzie is probably familiar with this because of who she is as a person. But Annie, do you know what Ravenloft is? The name sounds familiar. Is it some kind of tabletop setting? It is. It is the Dungeons and Dragons gothic horror setting. I've heard of this, but I don't know much about it. Go on. It started off with a module called... Uh, Castle Ravenloft. But the idea is it's Dracula. There is this castle, there's a vampire in there, he has Dracula-esque control over the weather and such. It's a gothic horror setting, so, you know, your allies dying and being turned into vampires is a possibility, and it was very critically acclaimed, and it led to a bunch of sequels, and eventually it became a campaign setting of its own called Ravenloft, which in the Dungeons & Dragons sort of planescape cosmology takes place on the Demiplane of Dread which is made up of a bunch of smaller domains, and each of these is a hell dimension for a specific evil person called a Dark Lord. Strahd the Vampire in Ravenloft is a Dark Lord. There's a Dr. Frankenstein Dark Lord. There's a Werewolf Dark Lord. So this is like the battle world from the most recent Secret Wars thing in Marvel, but with like horror movie guys? Sort of. The idea is that if you're a Dark Lord, this is your hell dimension. You are here in this gothic domain that you have utter and complete power over, but there is always going to be some way that it tortures you. For example, Strahd the Vampire. He has Dracula-esque control over this domain. He is ruler of all of it. He, ha- he can control the weather. But every once in a while, this lady will show up, who is the reincarnation of his lost love, Tatiana. And he will always try to woo her, and he will always fail, and she will always die. It offers you up the opportunity to get what you really want, but always snatches it away from you at the last minute. And also, the, like, the idea is you end up in Ravenloft because like these mysterious mists show up and envelop you and once you find your way out of the mist you're in Ravenloft and it's it's this dimension that you can never leave and turns back on itself. So my theory is that this movie is somebody's Ravenloft campaign and the problem with making a movie out of your tabletop role-playing campaign is that it's boring and nobody cares. I see okay. So yeah it's all here it's the labyrinthine sort of nonsense physics. There's a spooky mist that whisks people away. There is a dark lord uh, who has control over the domain, but is also trapped there, i.e. the spooky doctor. This is somebody's Ravenloft campaign. So indie horror. How is indie horror sick? It's terrible at character building. You either get examples like what happened here in Grave Encounters, where it's just they have either one personality trait or they're the girl, and they have nothing beyond that. Or you get everybody's terrible. All they care about is drugs, sex, beer, drink, drink, drink. Oh, we all died. Or there's the family with the dad who doesn't believe in the spookies, the mom who makes worried eyebrow faces all the time and is aware of the spookies, the older teenager, usually a girl, who is on her phone all the times. She's into sex and she's on her phone and doesn't believe in the spookies. And then there's the kid that gets the imaginary friend. And it's okay for characters to be archetypes, but the archetype can't be the entirety of their character. They need to be believable people if we're going to care when they start getting killed off. We need to care in some faculty about these characters. Either we want to see them live or we want to see them die spectacularly. There are some horror movies that are really built and thrive upon, like, character motivations because they're actually, like, the spooky thing is related to a greater theme, you know, in a, in a vaguely sort of dark romantic sense. Those are a little more few and far between in terms of indie horror, but that is something that happens. 
Crimson Peak. Oh, Crimson Peak. So good. I would even say a good example of this could be Haunter. Haunter? Which one was that? Uh, it was the one with the girl who ended up being a ghost. And um, her family was replaying the same themes over and over again. And she was trying to save the new girl who had moved into the house. Yeah, it wasn't like super scary, but it was intriguing in terms of like character motivations and wanting to see them succeed. And they did very good at developing that whenever like the ghosts and the themes started taking over and turning dad into somebody who murdered his family, uh, they started showing how that was different or how dad was acting strange. And it helped that they developed the characters well while staying within those tropes. And you even get that sort of same thing with, like, Juon over in Japan. Dude, J-Horror is doing some really interesting things lately. If you want to be really scared, watch some J-Horror. Actually, it's some K-Horror, too. Yeah, K-Horror is doing some great stuff, too. In Grave Encounters, the characters aren't really characters. There's no attempt to make them anything other than the girl one, the black one, the host one. I mean, and that can work if you're just doing, like, a spooky horror thing. But if you're trying to make us actually care whether they live or die, that's a fundamental failure. Also, horror needs to decide what genre it is. Like, if it's gothic horror, go full-on gothic horror. If it's Blair Witch, you gotta really commit to it. But you can't just have the front half of one movie and the back half of another movie and stitch them together and expect people to actually, like, enjoy it. There are ways that these movies function, not because that's how they've always done it, but because that is what is most narratively satisfying in an intrinsic sense. And you can't just fuck with that willy-nilly. You gotta know what the rules are and why they're there before you can break them. It's like learning figure drawing before you really cartoon a whole lot. You gotta know how these bones go together. Horror needs to be good at building tension, but a lot of indie horror is terrible diffusing it. Like we were talking about with the, oh my god, that was really scary sequence. Just completely kill the tension every time with a bunch of people talking about how scary the thing that just happened was. No! It feels like the, the movie is telling me it's scary rather than just being scary. It wouldn't have been super satisfying, but you could have ended it like the first time they saw one of the ghosts that like turned around and screamed at them and lunged at them. You could have done that. That at least would have been like, oh, and leads to the imagination of what is and what is scary. What's happened to them? We don't know. But what the mind imagines is always scarier than what's actually on the screen. Speaking of, this movie keeps showing us scary things that are not actually scary. Attack of the Flying Hospital Bed is not scary. Oh my God. You know what my favorite part was? The Muppet Arms. Yeah! They just turned on the lights and suddenly there were Muppet hands everywhere. Reaching down from the ceiling. Some of them were really big, like comically big, and it was like, okay. Just a bunch of people in opera gloves, just like wagging their fingers around like, ooh. Yeah, not scary. She's kind of funny, really. You gotta commit to things that are scarier than just jump scares. Having a radio start screaming and then switch off, that's a jump scare. It's not actually a lasting, terrifying thing. You know what I actually thought was effective in the first act, or maybe early in the second? When they were wandering around, as you do, and uh, they hear that crash and they go, and there's that gurney where the wheels are still spinning. I like that. That implies a lot. That says something was just here, and I think that is effectively spooky. But in terms of, like, things being actively terrifying instead of just passively spooky, this movie failed on every conceivable way. And, you know, one thing that indie horror could stand to lay off of? Sensitive and nuanced depictions of mental illness. Maybe just lay off a little on, on sort of the haunted sanitariums and the people in your neighborhood with a mental illness that were killed by somebody. Maybe lay off that? And the whole plot lines where characters start to doubt their sanity. And it's like, okay, maybe this is scarier for someone who isn't mentally ill, but for people with mental illness, which is a larger segment of the population than these filmmakers obviously think. A not insignificant amount. Oh, you can't trust your perceptions and it feels like the world is out to get you. Yep, same shit as always. 
There are other things that you can do here. I get it. You like HP Lovecraft. I get it. I know. To quote Gail Simone, HP Lovecraft was afraid of his shadow, but only because his shadow was black. Oh, oh. Ice burns from Gail Simone. Damn Simone. Can we just like find something else to be scared of? I mean, this movie had an honest to God Joker laugh in it. It's the year of our Lord 2016. There's got to be other stuff that you can find unsettling besides mental illness. It's not actually that scary. And it's not actually that unusual. That's the part that gets me the most. Like M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. I thought it had some good creepy moments. It was good at raising tension. But when it was just, oh, escape mental patients killed somebody. Spoilers. Again, it's what year, Mr. Shyamalan? The Dark Lord stopped being scary the moment they actually showed him. And they barely even mentioned this doctor, too. You don't even really need this guy. You don't need him to show up on camera. No. You just need to imply that he's there. You need to imply that there's a presence, that something wants to stop you from leaving, and then it offers you a choice. Of course, there's always my way out. I like the Haunted Mansion, not the movie. But yeah, horror filmmakers lay off the mental hospital sets. I realize that, like, there's that one in BC that everyone keeps shooting at, and it's really tempting to just shoot your movie there. Don't do it. If you want to use kind of a spooky hospital setting, use an actual sanatorium where they treated tuberculosis patients. Yeah. Because uh, that's what the Waverly Hills Sanatorium is. That's where I stayed overnight. It was spooky, even though I don't believe in ghosts. Sorry, everybody. And that's, that's the thing, right? Atmosphere. Atmosphere actually makes things spooky. Which is why the Labyrinthine Pocket Dimension Hospital was actually a good concept. Atmosphere makes things spooky. And, you know, that's another thing. Indie horror makers, trust your audience to imply spooky things and have them fill in the blanks. It actually works better. If you just kind of give a hint that something spooky is going on, people are going to fill it in themselves. Yeah, you don't need characters constantly saying, oh, that was so spooky. If you just show me, like, a character sitting in an empty room and there's a door open in the background, I'm going to assume something's going to come through that, or at least walk past it, and I'm going to be sitting on the edge of my seat tense, and if nothing does, I'll be fine with that, and if something just kind of rushes past, I'll also be fine with that. Just don't have them sit there going, wow, this door is open, it's so spooky. You don't have to, like, keep it to low scares, but, you know, just time things effectively. Let people scare themselves. Also, like, I have a question. When Kenny went to get them in the morning, how did that play out for him? Like, he unlocks the door, he does the round of the hospital, they're nowhere, but he finds cameras and shit, like... Well, looks like they were sucked into the spooky hell dimension again. Ugh, happens. This keeps happening. I really ought to put up a sign. Oh, well, I guess this is what we're dealing with. Yup, yup, nope, yup, I've seen this before, it's one of them their hell dimension hospitals. Yeah, yup, uh, Bob had to deal with that last week. You got stuck in there for a week now. Hey, hey, Bob, Bob, how long were you stuck in that there held up? Yeah, a week? Yeah. What'd you eat? Rats. Bob, we have talked about this. You cannot eat the rats. They are adorable. Those are fancy rats. Bring a granola bar, Bob. So irreverently, this makes me think of, um, I was listening to my favorite podcast that I listened to the other day. That's not our podcast, because of course our podcast is my favorite. Of course. But they were talking about this gateway to hell in the middle of Kansas. And apparently, according to local legend, the gateway to hell, if you walk down into it on Halloween night, you either are gone forever or you'll be back in two weeks. Something about that eternity or two weeks just delights me to no end. I love that. I love that it's like two weeks, too. Just a fortnight. They get tired of you otherwise. Yeah, you gotta leave at that point. It's probation. You get two weeks in the hell dimension. And afterwards, if hell's not right for you, they'll let you go. 
You get a pamphlet and everything. And then if, if you stay, that's when you get your benefits package. Also, I'd like to point out Grave Encounters was directed by, quote, the Vicious Brothers, who, near as I can tell, are not actually brothers, and neither of their names are vicious. I see all I can think of now is the Stabbington Brothers from Tangled. What a great name. The Stabbingtons. That's right, Tangled had not one but two Ron Perlmans. Only one of them spoke, but it was implied that they were both Ron Perlman. I think we've basically exhausted this topic. Indie horror, you gotta work on this stuff, man. I mean, unless you're just doing this just to be terror bad, in which case, bring it. Indie horror is sick, and Grave Encounters is a great showcase of all the things that you do right, and then how you do everything wrong that undoes it. And again, I'm actually mad at you guys for making me watch this. You're welcome. Are you gonna be mad about next time? The Swan Princess Christmas? Maybe. Oh, it's so good. I love their teeth. Are you ready? Because that's next time, Kit. I have it on DVD. It has extras. I hope there's another storybook about her evil Uncle Rothbart. Oh my god, I hope so. All right. So let's let's talk about our final facts. Kit, what's your final fact? Nobody cares about your Ravenloft campaign. Keep it to yourself. Mac, what's your final fact? My final fact is there are a lot of good horror films out there, and if you need a list of them, just ask. But for the most part, they kind of suck. My final fact is character drives a lot of stories and either I have to care or I don't. So that was our spoopy Halloween episode. Spoopy. We hope you're significantly spooked. We hope you have enjoyed listening to us yell about horror movies. Specifically one very bad horror movie. We do like horror movies, and Mac definitely has a whole list of good ones. Okay, guys, join us next time for our special holiday episode, uh, which this year will probably come out close to Christmas. Because our schedule won't be all hecked up this time, hopefully. And for our special holiday, what better fact to give you than Richard Rich must be stopped? We'll be watching the Swan Princess Christmas special. Yes, it exists. Yes, it's 3D animated. Yes, it's terrifying. Yes, there are teeth. I'm very excited. I'm very excited, you guys. I love Christmas. I love garbage Christmas specials. I love the Swan Princess. This is a trifecta. And also, we realized that Yuffie's been kicking around for a little while, so we're gonna go ahead and call our Christmas episode our one-year anniversary. So that's gonna be cool. Expect no celebrations. So until then, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you.